Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. Today, we're talking about Unleashed, the unapologetic leader's guide to empowering everyone around you. I will say right up front that I didn't know about this book. I know a lot of times we bring books that we have some relationship to, either we've read them, we use them in our work. This one, I really was just taken by the title. The authors start with the premise of it's not about you and talk about their definition of leadership as empowering others as a result of your presence and then making sure that your impact continues in your absence. I wanted to start there. What do you think of that? I think it's such a powerful place to start and such a powerful way of defining leadership. I've been thinking a lot about what we mean when we say that leaders set a vision and what we mean when we talk about leaders setting sort of guide paste or helping find alignment. And this piece about the absence is so powerful. It's not about getting up in the middle of a company, all hands meeting and being inspirational, which is a great thing to be able to do. But if it doesn't last, it's not solid leadership. So I think it's a really great definition. I do too, because I also hadn't heard of the book before. I didn't have a relationship to it as such. And so when I saw the title Unleashed, I made an assumption about it before I opened it. I thought, you know, we read a lot of leadership books. I thought, okay, this is going to be about unleashing something within us and all this stuff. And, and, and there's, there's some of that. I mean, there's some focus on the self, of course, which I'm sure we'll get into. But this idea that, no, it's actually unleashing and unlocking in others is really interesting. And, and the part about absence resonates with me too, because I remember early on in my career, when I was first taking on a leadership role, I had a manager give me some great advice. I asked her, what's the best way for me to really empower my team so that they feel that they can do their best work and, and come into their own. And her answer was take all of your vacation, <laughs> which I love, I love you know, and it's, and of course, when they talk about absence in this book, it's, it's deeper than that, but, but it's kind of getting at the same thing, which is you should be able to set up your people in a way that you can step away and go away and turn off and not only know that things are going to be fine, but that they have that chance to really continue to have impact. So it's more than just keeping things afloat. It's actually helping people be more impactful when you're not there. Yeah, there's a lot there around absence that I think seems to have struck all three of us as just a framing that we don't see a lot. That idea of being a leader that empowers people and not just when you're there to coach them or to mentor them, but that your leadership makes an impact when you're not there could be a difficult thing to kind of wrap our minds around. I like the way that they talk about absence through that lens of strategy and culture to frame that idea of how do you have an impact in your absence was just a different, a different lens for me. Yeah. The other thing that this sort of taps into that I've been thinking about a lot about recently is the question of when you're driving towards results, which of course we have to be driving towards results as we're thinking about leadership. We've got a goal that we're trying to lead people towards, whatever that is. The common language around 
having the people who report to you drive to results is holding them accountable. And holding them accountable is so, it's controlling. And unleashing them and empowering them and having leadership that has that impact in your absence without that sort of holding them accountable, that shift to creating a structure in which they are empowered and they're excited and they're aligned and they hold themselves accountable with whatever skills they need for holding themselves accountable is really how you can take all your vacation. That's right. <laughs> and the, the analogy I like is that, you know, you're not the star of the show. See yourself as more the director than the star. And, and it's funny when I read that, I remember thinking, yeah, I don't really think of myself as the star of the show. Like that's so vain. And, but then as you dig deeper in the book as to what some of those signs are that you're putting yourself first and not others first, I thought, oh boy, maybe I am susceptible to some of these. Nobody wants to really think of themselves as like, yes, I'm the star of the show, but the behaviors will kind of betray us sometimes and be like, you know what, maybe I am thinking about that the wrong way. And it's interesting. And also a lesson for us to say, maybe take a hard look at what you're doing. Even if you think you're empowering others and putting others first, it may be that that's not coming through in the action because again, to the point of absence, we've all had situations or many of us have had situations where a leader has come and gone, they've departed and their impact stays for better or for worse. Yep which is, you know, in some ways counterintuitive. It's like, well, that person's gone. Like, why can't we just start being different now? And it's like, well, because they were, they were the star, (laughs) they made themselves the star. And so then it becomes hard and that void that's created to know what to do right away. And so old habits persist, old patterns persist. So anyway, all the more reason to have the right person at the helm, I think. Yeah. It's interesting that you describe that pattern of the influence staying after a leader for good or bad. And sometimes that's a bad thing. I've also experienced the opposite, which is a team is functioning like they're empowered and they feel like they're empowered. And and then the leader leaves and it falls apart. And it's that the leader had made themselves the star of the show. They'd made themselves Often this comes in the language of servant leadership. Often this is actually that form of like, you can depend on me. I'm taking care of you. It feels very nice. But as soon as I'm gone, you feel lost. And I've seen that happen several times over my career too. Nithya, you brought up the signs that it might be all about you. And I'm glad you did because... I had the same reaction. You're looking at that. And of course, we like to think of ourselves as not making it all about us. Some of these you read and you say, oh, maybe I need to look at that a little bit more closely. One of them being the most interesting thing about other people is what they think of you. And I think that that can we can run into that sometimes with feedback. Again, it's always that line of where is it for improvement and where is it in the frame of this book about you? That idea of having a 360 and being more focused on what individuals said about you than aggregating it and saying, okay, how can I be a better leader? The other one that caught my eye was the talk about optimism versus pessimism. The idea of leadership is built on the assumption that tomorrow can be better than today. Yeah. And that was just so interesting to me to read that and think about the idea of working on your optimism and increasing your optimism as something that drives your leadership. 
Yeah. I love the distinction between optimism and positivity. Optimism being this belief that tomorrow can be better than today. You can have no matter how bad today is and no matter how good today is. Whereas that piece of, all right, yeah, we're going to do this. Positivity can turn into not wanting to actually look at the hard stuff when there's hard stuff here today. Yeah. That's when it's so-called toxic positivity, right? Yeah. And it's subtle because finding the optimism is often in the place of looking at the seeds of hope in today. So it's the, what can we learn from this or what is good today that we can build on or like, how can we actually bring a strength to this hard challenge? So it's looking for the good stuff in that moment, but it's not going, okay, everything's great and it's going to get better. It's like, okay, everything is as it is, but it can be better. Right. Exactly. You're orienting yourself in possibility rather than impossibility. This was a learning for me because I I suppose looking back, I probably misjudged some leaders in my life throughout my career who were probably trying their best to lean into optimism. Maybe there was a little too much positivity there, or maybe I mistook it (laughs) for too much positivity. I'm not sure. But in reading this book, it helped me understand that, yeah, optimism is a, a leadership skill and that it is actually the role of the leader to see possibility in tomorrow. It's one of those things that seems obvious, but actually isn't in practice. Yeah. And it gets hard when you're worried about things like security and privacy, or you're working on problems that are really solving deep customer needs because that need is there. And so it's easy to say, okay, this is really hard. And I'm in the moment of trying to solve this problem and I haven't actually gotten there yet. It's hard to be in that place, looking at the hard things and going, and we're going to find our way through. The way the book is outlined There's three parts to presence, trust, love, and belonging. Trust gets talked about a lot. We run into this idea in terms of how do you build trust? What does trust mean? Trust is the foundation of effective teams and effective relationships. So it's not a new concept. I'm curious to know what your response was to how they talk about trust and looking at the trust triangle as they outline it. I have to say, I loved the trust triangle because in my coaching work, as well as my learning and development work, probably similar to both of you, I've seen a million different ways trust is defined. There are trust equations and trust diagrams. And it's just, everyone has a definition of trust. That just seems like the newest, coolest thing. And I mean, sometimes they are cool. I don't, I don't want to dismiss all of them, but I frankly liked the simplicity of this one, that it really is those three components. And I hope I get this right. Authenticity, logic, and empathy. Yeah. It's just so straightforward that, you know, if you, if you perceive that someone isn't authentic or that someone isn't logical or or credible is the way I see that one. Right. Or that they don't actually care about you. They don't have empathy. If any one of those isn't true, you're, you're not going to trust somebody. And it's so clear and so simple. It doesn't require a whole big long (laughs) equation. And also in looking at this triangle, I went back and looked at leaders that I found particularly trustworthy and those that I found I couldn't trust in my career And honestly, the triangle checks out. It was always one or more of those three things that 
I found made me uh, less likely to trust that leader. So it resonated a lot. I think that it manages to capture a bunch of things that we've talked about in a bunch of different contexts. I know that when we talked about the truth about leadership, one of the things that I highlighted was how many different ways and lenses on trust were sort of layered in with different vocabulary through chapters in that. We have, over the course of this podcast, not talked very much about actual competency as a part of leadership in terms of, I believe you can actually get the job done. I actually think that you have the skills to do the project planning and the the strategic planning. We haven't actually talked about that very much in the books that we've read for this podcast. And it's actually a really important part of credibility, that sort of logical, I actually believe that you have the skills to get us where we need to go piece. We have talked a lot about understanding our own values and knowing what we stand for and the self-awareness required for trustworthiness and that authenticity piece. And we've talked about the difference between the work that we do on ourselves and how that manifests in terms of other people actually need to observe it. It's not enough to have good intent. We actually have to know ourselves well enough to be able to be transparent so that they see us in line Mm -hmm. with who we are. And just feeling authentic isn't good enough. Over and over, we come back to these various places where if people don't actually feel like you care about them as people and they feel like they're being treated as a tool to get the job done, they're less enthusiastic followers. Yeah, I like what you said there, Kate. And I would say the same is probably true about empathy, isn't it? It's not sufficient to feel it in your heart. (laughs) You have to demonstrate it through behavior. And and you're right. I think I agree that we've spent a fair amount of time in in our other books, other episodes talking about authenticity and empathy and the, the pitfalls of each. And logic, that third one seems like the one that is across the board, probably talked about the least in leadership materials, being good at your craft and knowing your stuff, as you said, you know, being strategic, earning trust that way. But I suppose this is just my guess. I suppose it's probably talked about the least because that's the one everyone thinks they need to do anyway. I I think there's hyper-focus on that one. And the leaders who probably think they're really good at leading probably over-index on that one. And maybe they are really good at that, right? And, And don't pay enough attention to those other two prongs. And I think maybe that's why. I'm certainly sure that that's part of it. I suspect that there are times when people are like, I've got this whole authenticity leadership thing down and they don't actually look at, are you actually good enough at your craft? Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, human beings being human beings, there's a, there's an example of failure on every possible point of failure that there could be because. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I l- love the discussion between the two of you on these three things, because they actually ask you to ask yourself, what's your anchor? Which one do you tend to show more of, or which one is your default? What both of you are saying, sometimes it's, well, I don't even think about authenticity because I've done so much work on who I am, what I stand for. So I see that and I say, I got that. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the empathy that we need to work on because something's really going on with us and we want to show empathy, but are we actually demonstrating it in a way that somebody perceives it? That idea of what's your anchor and what's your wobble, I think is what the two of you are getting at in terms of where are you strong? And I know that we've all seen a lot of emerging leaders 
who get moved into people manager positions because they're really good at what they do. Yeah. Because we see that so much, we do tend to focus more on helping those folks with the authenticity and the empathy part rather than have them lead by logic completely, lead from that expert point of view. Interesting just to think about different people's journey through different roles and what's their anchor and what where's their wobble. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about historically the piece about individual contributors who are good at what they do being moved into people management because that's a place for them to go. That is a reaction to, in some cases, managers who didn't have the technical competence and who didn't have the respectedness of the technical people coming out of management. And so there's been a move away from the MBA into business leadership, into consulting, where you can sort of get that management training as a separate piece. And I think it's really interesting because at that point, the assumption was that it was easier to have people who were good at management lead people who were technically skilled. And now there's a sense that it's easier to have people who are technically good learn the management. And the answer is that they're both hard. And whichever way, whichever way you build your people, yeah. the good leadership actually requires some technical competence and some management skill. And you can start in either place. And if you over-focus in either place at your foundation, which you probably will, because you can only specialize in one thing at a time, you're going to get to a point where you actually need to bone up on the other side. I got a great visual in my head when you said, build your people. I like- <laughs> We're all Legos. We <laughs> <They> are. <laughs> Hey, why do you think they call it constructive feedback? We're just, we're building and we're building and we're building. That's what this is. <laughs> Very good. I think of that in terms of as companies are creating leadership development programs, and we see so many that say, we're going to talk about leading yourself, leading teams, and then leading the organization. That idea of building on those skills and what are the pieces that we want to include. And so thinking about which building blocks go where, I like that metaphor. Yeah, I'm thinking about the difference between well-rounded people and spiky people and how you build a leadership team with a bunch of complementary spiky people rather than trying to get everybody to be well-rounded because it's just too hard for any one of us to be really skilled on all the different facets that are useful in leadership projects. It's true. And I suppose it also requires letting go because if we put so much on ourselves as leaders that we have to be 100% excellent at the technical competencies and at people management and leadership, it's it's a great goal to have. I'm not going <laughs> to take that away from anybody, but I also think it's it's fine for us to have some grace towards ourselves and say, you know what, I, I think this is where I really need to focus. I need to focus on other people, on, on unleashing and unlocking the potential of other people. Maybe I choose to let go of the need to feel a hundred percent competence. I mean, you, you know, you gotta have competence, of course, but the need for expertise in every technical area, I think just, you know, it, it has to be let go. Otherwise I think we'll, we'll drive ourselves a little crazy, but that can be hard for folks too to say like, you know what, uh, I'm going to, 
surround myself with people who are probably more competent than me in certain things. And that's okay because it frees me up to, to make it not about me and to put others first and to grow other people. That actually goes into something they talk about a little bit later in the book about being willing to be bad. They talk about it from a organizational point of view. So I think it's interesting to take what you both have been talking about, about spiky people and well-rounded people and think about it from that organizational point of view. If the mindset of it's okay for me not to be good at all of these things is difficult, how much more difficult is that to take that to the organizational level? And yet how impactful can that be? Yeah, deciding what not to do is really hard to figure out how to focus. Saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to trust that this definition that we've had, although it's narrow, is actually going to be specific enough that we can do it really well and capture enough market. Another thing that stood out to me as I got the book and I'm flipping through it and I'm looking at how it's laid out, and what the chapter titles are. There's a chapter that's titled Love. Mm-hmm. Not something we see a lot in other books. And we've talked a lot about feelings. What was your reaction to seeing that one chapter was literally titled Love? I definitely had a reaction to it. <laughs> um, I, like most people, have been conditioned to think that has no place at work, that there's work. And then there are the parts of your life where love happens of one kind or another. You know, recently though, I have started to change my view on that. And I think it's because of a leader in in my life is somebody I work with a really phenomenal leader who actually uses phrases like this is what love looks like at work. So uh, when he gives someone hard feedback, but necessary feedback in a kind way, and, and they have an intimate conversation, he'll, he'll use that phrase. He's like, this is love at work. He's said it enough times to where it's started to normalize a little bit for me to be able to understand. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's, that's what it is, is you're holding someone in a certain way and you are caring enough about them and investing enough in them to put yourself out there. I mean, that's what it is, right? You're putting yourself out there. You're taking risks because you care enough. All that to say, I've been using the word more at work recently, and it still doesn't roll off my tongue, but it feels like it has a place. I don't use the word at work, but I use the feeling at work all the time. One of the things that I think about a lot is how easy it is to get trapped in she's got the grid that she uses from with standards and devotion i can't even remember off the top of my head the name of the the ancient <laughs> who that came from but but high standards high devotion as the crux of love and i think about how often as a parent the challenge between do i let them off the hook or do i have the high standards and that how do i show them that i'm devoted to them while i'm holding them to stretch towards standards and expectations and i think it's the same at work it's without the devotion piece without the empathy piece without what I think of as love in a much bigger picture, 
it becomes very transactional and it becomes a place in which I'm going to do what I have to, to get my job done and get the paycheck, but I'm not going to do any more than that. And it's not fun for anyone. I think it taps into all of the things that we use employee engagement to measure. And I think it taps into what actually makes retention work. I don't use the word, but I go around in back quarters <laughs> with my friends from when I was in training to be a spiritual leader and saying, I'm doing secular ministry. They call it coaching. <laughs> Like it is about love. It's love in that big, not romantic sense. It's about caring about the greater whole. Right. Yeah. It has transactional, if I can use that word, and relational components, right? The high standards are there because you have expectations in love. I mean, you talked about the parenting example, Kate. If you think about any relationship you have in your life that you would characterize as one of love, yeah, it has expectations. That's kind of part of the deal. But too often, I think in the work setting, that organizations stop there. It's, it's like, we have expectations of you at the end. We're not devoted to you. We're not loyal to you. And if we are, we have no reason to show it, right? Is the old way of thinking. I think too, a lot about how before there was this expectation that people would be loyal to their employer, to the people they work with. It's two way though. I think people have to feel like the people leading them are quote, loyal to them too, and devoted to them. And without that, you can't really expect a high level of, of trust to exist or for people's work to be the best that it could be. It's always going to kind of be, if people don't perceive high standards and high devotion, well, their devotion is going to be kind of meh too. <laughs> it's just yeah. the way it goes. Part of the piece that shows up in terms of standards when it's, <laughs> I was going to say laced with devotion, but when it's mixed with devotion is it's that piece of, I want you to succeed and these meeting these standards is part of how you're going to thrive. And so part of it is actually not standing a hundred percent in the space of these standards or what I need you to meet in order for me to survive, but actually we need to meet these standards for us to thrive. And that belief that they can reach those standards. And if they don't reach those standards on the first try, there's support there to figure out, okay, so what needs to be done differently? Yep. You don't lose the love by not meeting the standard. Right. You actually lean a little bit on the love to still hold to the high standard and to have the hard truth of we missed a goal or we missed a desired outcome. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you have to just go away. You lean into the love to say, so what do we need to do differently? Back to what you were talking about, Kate, I think with the optimism is, okay, yeah, this is where we are now. How do we make tomorrow better? Right. Versus yeah. you messed up or this thing got messed up. Let's dwell in that. It's moving forward from that. I also think there's a tie to trust that we talked about earlier, the trust uh, triangle, because I think that the people we lead are much more likely to trust that there is love at play here and that we have both high standards and high devotion that we're putting them first if they trust us. If they don't, then I think any attempt at providing strong feedback or enforcing those high standards or whatever it is we have to do as leaders, make hard decisions, it's not going to be received in the way that it's intended if there isn't trust. My wheels are turning because 
whenever we get into these conversations around trust and empathy and love, there's a part of me that goes to the neurobiology and the somatics of all of this. It doesn't get addressed in this book and it doesn't get addressed in most books on leadership. One of the ones that we've read that it gets addressed in to some extent is the emotional agility and it got addressed in say what you mean a bit. There's a way in which all of this gets manifested through human bodies. And I think that one of the things that is really useful to talk about in terms of where these edges are and are we actually meeting things is that sometimes the behaviors that we don't want to see at work are actually the sign that we're getting it kind of wrong. And I don't know that that's anywhere that we want to go, but I always end up when we have these conversations about trust and empathy, have a part of me thinking about, is there a role at work? for actually taking care of people at that that level of activation? Are we actually creating so much anxiety that they're not functioning well? There is a whole move around inclusion and diversity, which means that we're actually trying to welcome into the workplace people who have been traumatized by the world around them and by society and by the workplace. There's a reality to, if we were going to do that work at a really big, deep, inclusive level, and I guess this is getting into the the inclusion piece that's there later in the book, so it is relevant. It just took me a roundabout way to get there. (laughs) We're dealing with human bodies that have very quick, not conscious responses in the directions that we don't want to go. And I think that love is actually language that helps us ask the questions about how do we deal with that bigger hurt? That's really well said, Kate. I think about the way they talk about inclusion in the book and how the first thing people need to feel on that journey of inclusion is safe and safety. Of course there is psychological safety, but frankly, I think safety lives in the body in the way they're yeah. describing something that trauma lives in the body. A lot of negative experiences live in the body. And so we can't actually talk about all this merely conceptually. We do have to have people feeling safe enough to even engage. And if that safety isn't there, we can't achieve anywhere near those lofty goals around inclusion. And, you know, let's elevate more diverse people to to positions of leadership and let's do this and let's do that. And it's all great, but there's a a hierarchy of of needs there. Many of which I think we may take for granted, those of us who have more privilege than others, I think we take for granted, but you do have to start at the fundamentals and love is something that makes people feel safe or it should anyway. I, I once read somewhere, you can't love someone and control them at the same time. Right. And, uh, it's kind of worth thinking about in the work context and the leadership context of if you're controlling, then you're doing it wrong. That's not love. And it's certainly not going to help with safety and with inclusion. Yeah. And I think it's really, really challenging to actually take seriously. And I think part of the way, reason that we, or I shy away from actually using that language of love is if you start taking it seriously you start facing the places in yourself where you are selfish, where you are less kind in your impact than you want to be from your intention. And we're back 
to Brene Brown that we started this podcast with and shame and vulnerability and having the courage to lead. And, you know, this stuff is all interrelated. And I think that's another place where sort of building a culture of we can just talk about this and we actually have to extend each other grace you used Nithya I think is a really powerful word compassion is the one that I stand on a lot because the more time you spend looking at these questions in my experience the more you realize we never get there we just keep trying each of the different things that you're talking about are ways to create that culture where what Nithya was saying about starting at safe, they then go through three other steps. So how do you first help people feel safe, then welcome, then celebrated, hmm. and then cherished? And again, I think cherish is a word we don't hear a lot when we're talking about right. work. How do we create that? And it's always that toggle between transformational and transactional. So getting to cherished within your culture is transformational. There are transactional things that they talk about that can help move that along. And they talk about giving people the scaffolding that they need. And they talk about being really transparent about what gets promotions, different things like that, things that you can integrate into how your organization functions that celebrates people's differences as opposed to, oh, well, I guess that's something now we also need to include. So <laughs> yeah. as opposed to looking at it as, oh, okay, so now this is the new thing. We have to do this. They've created this sidebar called how to create spaces where queer people feel like they belong. How do we then create additional sidebars that are focused on other people that may feel excluded? I think what I loved most in what you're saying, Alyssa, is how not to see things like that as more work for us. And, oh boy, I got to learn a new thing or, <laughs> oh, here's another thing I have to think about because that's seeing it as a burden and, you know, in line with this book, that's making it about you <laughs> when you look at it that way. It's like, oh, more work for me or more learning I have to do. And instead the shift in orientation, I think they describe seeing these things as, well, A, learning opportunities and B, just a part of your job. It's not some additional burden. That's the job. And I think if we see it that way, we're more likely to get to that place of cherishing. Yeah. That idea of expanding your empathy in a way that says, this is going to lead to positive results. This is going to increase our effectiveness as an organization because it helps create that safety. And without that safety, we can't get to those other stages. And I think so much of it comes down to curiosity and willingness to listen. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that the other piece of that, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last year. And I think part of it is if you're already comfortable in the environment, then it's your job to be curious and to listen. And if you're not comfortable in, in the environment, your job is to figure out what do you need to do to take care of yourself? Because your safety is important. If we don't feel safe, we don't perform at our best. So sometimes we have to take care of our own safety and sometimes that's clean boundaries and sometimes that's not stepping out. And sometimes it's get the skills to feel like, okay, now I can articulate clearly in the language that they will hear. And sometimes it's actually building up leadership skills for ourselves, even though we don't have formal authority. 
And then sometimes it's finding your peer group, finding your support network, finding your women in technology or your people of your culture in your place, whatever the piece is, because there are so many of them, I could just go on forever talking about them, right? But to find the people that get your struggle. So as leaders trying to create that in our, in our organizations, encouraging people to take care of themselves the way that they need to. That plus giving them access to leadership training, even if they haven't already demonstrated that we're putting them into a leadership role and questioning. I think it needs to happen at all those different levels. So let's hear our thinkaways. I can start. Earlier, we talked about signs that it might be all about you, (laughs) whether you realize it or not. And we shared a few. I want to offer here a couple more because they were some of my biggest thinkaways from the book. One of the signs that's mentioned is if you're constantly in crisis. And it never occurred to me before to connect the dots between feeling like you're constantly in crisis and making it about you. And it wasn't until reading this book that I understood that if you're feeling constantly in crisis, it's because you're swirling around in your own head, not being optimistic in the way that we talked about and looking at possibility and quite possibly not looking at the people around you and saying, how could this be better? How can this be fixed? How can I give more to others or or delegate more, whatever it might be, but always feeling it's, it's all sitting on your head and that it's a crisis you have to resolve. That was a really interesting connection. And so my challenge would be for those listening, do you feel like you're constantly in crisis? Things are always on fire metaphorically. If so, it, it might be because it's all about you and how can you look at other people and unleash something in them to help you out of that? One of the sidebars that I thought was really valuable was the 10 signs you shouldn't make that next joke. I think that humor is something that is really easy to turn into a weapon without noticing it. And so when we're talking about inclusion and belonging and love and trust, really paying attention to humor is really valuable. Humor is what we use to define what the in-group is. If we aren't careful, we inadvertently exclude people through our use of humor and we feel good about it because we enjoy the humor and it makes us feel safe. These signs that you shouldn't make the next joke are really powerful and I recommend pulling them from the book itself. So my think away though is, is your humor inclusive? What do you notice about how people react to your humor? And is that a place where making some changes would make you more impactful? My thinkaway goes back to the trust triangle that we talked a lot about. There was one particular point that they made in terms of looking at what your trust wobble might be and how to change the way you communicate depending on that. Specifically, if logic is your wobble. And I think I was probably pulled there because if I were to look at that triangle and rank them, logic would probably come third for me, spending a lot more of my time in the authenticity and the empathy realms. So the idea of communication for logic wobblers, rather than taking people on this journey that kind of winds and winds and winds to the point of actually thinking about how you communicate the logic part and giving people a clear path. Unleashed is all about empowering other people 
And how do you communicate to people in a way that has an impact on them? Rather than focusing necessarily on your style, thinking about how can I flex my style to have a greater impact on someone else? Taking that from the specific example of the trust triangle and thinking about what does your communication look like? If your trust wobble is authenticity, how do you infuse more of that into your communication? If your trust wobble is empathy, how do you express and clearly communicate more empathy? Oh, that wandering story to make a point because you've got your logic wobble resonates so hard with me. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a Four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.